you uh, are interested, please join me in the chants. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Om Manjushri, please accomplish this. Hey, good evening, hi, welcome, and so forth. all of you this evening in your little boxes awfully impressive bookcases there very cool nothing, nothing better than bookcases in my life anyway hey so tonight we dive further into uh, Vipassana practice whatever that is and my effort to decipher where we are has led me to the conclusion that we did not go through the very last reading of last week. Does anyone else agree with me on that? Cynthia, I see a couple of thumbs up, Andrew. Now in this week's list of uh, readings, I included the wrong reading from last week. I don't know if anyone noticed that, but <laughs> anyway, so I'm going to start with last week's package, the last reading, unless anybody uh, corrects me. I'll bring it up on screen. I hear the buzzing sound. Oh, thank you so much. Here, let me pull out my charger. My computer goes off, you'll know why. <laughs> Literally drains down in a two-hour class. So, okay. So we're going to look at uh, this guy here. Comparison of Vipassana with Shamatha from 1973. That was a long time ago. His first seminary program and uh, I'm sure many I'm sure you're all familiar with the profound treasury which is the compilation of this material and for uh, some reason I went with the original as opposed to what made it into the books for this particular talk and uh, in 1973, Rimshe was very thorough, very traditional. So let's see what he says about Vipassana at that point and the trajectory of his presentation. Uh, so Vipassana in actual meditation practice. Before we get into it, let me clarify the attitude towards these practices. Shamatha practice is, re is regarded as a way of quieting or pacifying the mind. And Vipassana 
is a way of sharpening the potentials of psychological development. That's a pretty interesting way of describing Vipassana psychological development. I also have here, just happened to, uh, let's see. In our first class, we have like definitions of shamatha vipassana. I thought I would revisit. Here's Jomgen Kongshul says, uh, the essential nature of shamatha is one pointedness. And the essential nature of Vipassana is individual analysis, which fully discriminates phenomena. So there you have the very traditional definition of Vipassana, which is sort of completely opaque and like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> and then you have Trungpa Rinpoche, potentials of psychological development. What does that mean as well? <laughs> At least it has a little indication. What are the potential psychological development, like sanity, maybe? Shamaj is regarded as a cutting down process in a way that gives you a very little reference point. So you're cutting down all reference points, cutting down all uh, occupation, all reliance upon uh, reference points. Very little stuff to work on except its own ground of keeping mind within mind, as they say, slowly cutting into what is basically needed in order to quieten, that's a weird word, in order to quieten oneself. Shamaja is the, the development of peace. As far as Vipassana concerned, having already quietened, can't believe he repeated that weird word twice. <laughs> Uh, having already developed some basic work, one would be able to settle into what one has already practiced or created, settle into what one has achieved. So some sense of Vipassana being going further into the settled state in some way. We could expand from that level, extending ourselves into sharpening awareness rather than cutting down mental perceptions. So shamatha, cutting down mental perceptions, simplifying, reducing um, activity to stillness. And here, now we're then uh, expanding from that stillness and sharpening awareness, maybe without thoughts or maybe awareness that's uh, not uh, full of mental perceptions or mental conceptions maybe so there's an entirely different approach and notice that entirely different some places Rinpoche will say they're very similar some places they'll say they're very different depending on the day of the week and the weather maybe from that point of view Vipassana is referred to as insight and also as the seat of prajna Prajna, transcendent wisdom. The seat of prajna means preparing ourselves so that we become worthy of listening to the teachings and can hear them properly. So I think he's trying to say we become able to hear, sorry, to understand the Dharma. And what is the Dharma? What is the main message of Dharma? All Dharmas are said to agree at one point. I think in uh, there's a famous presentation by Atisha 
anyone know what that point is? Non-aggression. Non-aggression. That's Rinpoche's version. What is Atisha's version? That drive all blames into one? All dharmas agree at one point. That's oh. a different one, but it's actually quite similar. So all dharmas agree at one point. What is that point? Non-ego. Non-ego. Egolessness. Thank you very much. Egolessness. Um, so we can understand the dharma, the teachings of egolessness properly through vipassana. We're able to understand. We're able to perceive the subtleties of the teaching and the depth of the teaching. The variety of the teaching, uh, its breadth and its depth, its profundity. That's precisely the reason why Vipassana becomes an important practice. It's the start of opening the door of wisdom, the gate of wisdom. As I mentioned yesterday, any contemplative approach toward the teaching is also included in Vipassana practice. So here he said we have the opportunity of uh, listening to the teachings and hearing the teachings. Now, normally, prajna has three stages. Listening, contemplating, and meditating. So, vipassana spans all these in the same way that prajna spans all three. Listening, or hearing, contemplating, and meditating. And you'll see that he sort of uh, goes between vipassana as a contemplative practice and Vipassana as a meditative practice. Uh, let's see. That is to say, pondering on the subject of the Dharma intellectually is also regarded as Vipassana practice. Moreover, there's the meditative practice of Vipassana, which is development of awareness. And that awareness comes from several different conditions, fundamentally being as Robert, so uh, accurately stated earlier, Trunk Rinpoche's version, fundamentally being without aggression, which in some ways is the same as ego. Somebody um, is unmuted if they could uh, mute themselves. Uh, there we go. Definition of Dharma is the absence of aggression. In order to perceive Dharma, uh, in order to understand Dharma, we also have to develop a state of mind without aggression. Dharma, in this case, is any materials involved with our experience which are workable, which could be woven into the pattern of the past. So painting this picture of Vipassana, Dharma in general, working with aggression, uh, the mind of aggression, and anything that relates to that, all as workable with Vipassana practice. The absence of aggression in this case means a sense of non-ego, non-speed, the two points coming together here, non-ego and non-aggression. You might find it difficult to understand this tall order what is that tall order? Egolessness. Because it would be impossible for beginners to develop such perfection. But the idea is that there's a momentary state of mind which occurs in which there's an element of non-aggression and non-ego. The flash of openness, the gap that all humanoids experience throughout their lives. Meditators more so, presumably. That is to say, when we talked about the eight types of consciousness at the beginning, meaning 
uh, earlier in his presentation of the Dharma at this seminary. The eight types of consciousness, including the five skandhas, are all momentary things. So he's talking about the understanding of ego in the Buddhist tradition uh, that we discover in Vipassana practice. We develop our first skanda after the gap. So the development of ego, first there's a gap, and then there's the first skanda, and they, it goes from there to the fifth, and then it, come, it, then it goes back to the first, circles around, and comes out. Who knows what comes out means? So ego is not a constantly smooth running machine, highly secured situation, but there are gaps of all kinds in ego. Thank God. There's a little chink in the armor. There's a psychological gap which allows disorder for ego or the possibility of reasserting its position at the same time. I saw this quote from a famous song that's like this, talks about this. I think it's a Leonard Cohen song, right? The, the, the cracks are where the water comes in. <laughs> no, okay, the light. The cracks are where the light comes in. Um, there's a psychological gap which allows disorder for the ego or the possibility of reasserting its position at the same time. There's that kind of gap which goes on constantly. Well, if it's a gap, it, it couldn't be like a constant gap. Otherwise, there would be nothing that it's a gap from. But I think he means th these gaps repeat sort of regularly at least frequently, gap of non-ego, and then starting from the first skanda to the fifth, and then so forth. So that process of understanding every moment, there's openness, complete openness of gap, and then the ego creates itself from the first to the fifth skanda. And uh, what he did in a prior talk is he describes the creation of ego through the eight consciousnesses and includes the five skandhas in them in the way that he does in the book called Glimpses of Abhidharma, which is a very complicated, convoluted presentation. Oh, don't malign one of my favorite books, please. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It is the I apologize. Book. It is. It Very is. Fun. It is a great book. You got to check it out. It's it's the best presentation of the eight consciousnesses and the five scholars. How am I doing? So ego in this case, the five skandhas are regarded more as fickleness than continuity. That's that's like a positive, right? You know, normally we think of ego as like thick, like molasses and continuous and hard and no gap. But it's fickle, it has this fickleness because it doesn't, it doesn't do a good job of existing. And because of that fickleness, the application of Vipassana is possible to relate with those momentary gaps which are unconditioned psychologically. Maybe that's what he meant by psychological development early on. Vipassana relating to psychological developments, maybe uh, developing into unconditioned psychology, unconditioned by dualism, passion, aggression, and so forth. But it's very sudden. It's a fraction of maybe a hundred percent of it could be one hundred one one hundredth I think of a percent of a moment or one one hundredth of a moment. It's very fast, but also there's still that possibility in us a hundred percent of being a gap. 
the reason we can arouse the potential progenists by means of a is because of those gaps, the possibility to insert or relate with the unconditioned mind. The technique, oh, finally technique, huh? Or means of developing Vipassana's exactly the same as we discussed the other day. Darn, where were we the other day? How come we weren't there? <laughs> the third foundation of mindfulness effort or the sudden glimpse. So we did go through this talk. The sudden glimpse earlier in the Vipassana practice. Uh, sorry, in the shamatha section a couple of classes ago. Sudden glimpse of awareness which brings us back. And, and he gives this wonderful description of coming back um, in, a, in a sudden way, like a sudden jerk, and in a way where there's no like long drawn out process of sort of pulling yourself back. But as soon as you notice you're gone, you're back. That's that sudden glimpse, unconditioned awareness, which brings us back to the practice. So he says that's the same technique. So keep a footnote on that and we'll we'll explore that further as we go uh, a couple of classes where we dive into the technique more fully one of the subtleties of this practice is that one could still apply exactly the same methods of meditation we used in shamatha at the beginning we can use the breathing but in this case instead of being mindfulness of breathing it becomes awareness of breathing Awareness of breathing in this case means that there's a sense of precision and accuracy. Wasn't that the, the definition of mindfulness, precision and accuracy? Okay, so it has mindfulness in it, just like we saw with, with Sheshen and Trampa. They like are they always come together. If there's if there's true Sheshen, uh, vigilance, alertness, awareness then there's mindfulness. And also there's a sense of accommodating and that one doesn't have to nurse the experience of being mindful all the constant, constantly, all the time. So in, in shamatha, there's sense of, there's sense of maintaining mindfulness. Like a, there's this ongoing, subtle, at least subtle, some often more overt sense of maintaining mindfulness. And uh, he's describing the shift into Vipassana as including a, an experience of um, a sort of spontaneous mindfulness that doesn't have to be maintained any, anymore. You don't have to nurse it constantly. In the case of mindfulness, presumably he means here shamatha, we still tend to trust a great deal in the messenger, so to speak, who brings back the message of what's happening and being mindful on the spot. Mindfulness in the sense of like um, the message of whether I'm being mindful or not on the spot. The messenger also, and I think he means in Vipassana, checks the sense of totality, the sense of well-being. And remember, we went through well-being as one of the qualities that arises in the progression of shamatha. But here we have this totality. The sense of thisness is still happening rather than otherness. He'll expand on thisness and otherness. We'll see. So uh, that seems to be the difference between Shamatha and Vipassana. In the case of Shamatha, some kind of importance is still made on thisness. Thisness being like my posture, my breath, my thoughts, my sense of being here. This, 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 this. 
in spite of going out with the outbreath and dissolving out into the atmosphere. So in spite of, of those two parts of the technique, in other words, those two parts of the technique are oriented towards reducing the focus on thisness, if that makes any sense in your practice, like what the thisness is. And those two techniques are oriented towards shifting our our experience towards uh, opening up, expanding it towards thatness, otherness. Still, it belongs to this area rather than the other or that. In the case of Vipassana, there's less, less emphasis on this, and there's a very subtle and very faint emphasis on some kind of security and letting go, letting be. Security and letting go. That's a little bit of an odd uh, companionship, as well as letting be. Uh, the other is more important. Very subtle and very faint emphasis on some kind of security in maybe in letting go, like letting go in a way where where normally letting go sort of challenges our sense of security. But because we've become accustomed to going out and exploring the space, psychological, physical around us. We can, we can st actually experience a sense of security in that larger-ness, that larger area of otherness. We can afford to let go more with the breathing. Yes, ma'am? What do you mean, confidence? Uh, confidence, yes. That, that's a good way of interpreting it, confidence. Uh, do you remember in the beginning we discussed, let's see, that the shamatha practice is purely um, relating with the verge of the breathing, the outline of the breathing, a light touch. In Vipassana, it's slightly more than that, not more in the sense of letting go of your breathing, mindfulness of breathing, but of awareness of breathing. So not, not in the sense of letting go of your mindfulness of breathing, but in having awareness of breathing, making it much looser and more casual. When, when you're in shamatha relating uh, with the verge of the breathing, the outline of the breathing, a light touch, and remember the psychosomatic body, this is the conceptual experience of the breathing. So instead of focusing heavily on the breathing as if it's a real object, we're, we're sort of uh, mindful of the... Of the uh, extent of the breath. Here he, he uses this term, the outline of the breath. What could the outline of the breath be? Um, but in the sense that the attitude to the breathing has the otherness involved. So as we're breathing, we're also uh, paying attention to, by with awareness to otherness everything around the breathing. The breathing happens not only in its own, own accord, but also in the realm of the atmosphere around us, around it. When we talk about the otherness, we're talking about the sense of atmosphere, totality, outside of our body, completely outside of our antennas, radiation. Panoramic awareness is how he describes this later in many places. Let's see, does that make the difference between the physical space? It's sort of an odd 
grammatical question. Does that make the difference between the shamatha would be the physical space around you and vipassana the psychological space? That's a good question. Yeah, and it could be very difficult to actually understand what we're getting into, <laughs> particularly the way it's being described. But if a person has a really good understanding of shamatha practice in its own sense of space, He's sort of saying, if you really understand your shamatha, then you know what he's talking about. Um, then the Vipassana practice becomes much easier to work with. In other, uh, in other words, much easier to experience. In some sense, the difference between the two is that shamatha is literal. In spite of its this and that, it's very literal shamatha. Precise, technique-oriented. This and that. Vipassana or Lakjong practice is somewhat romantic in in a uh, way, idealistic. There's some room for kind of ventilation or fresh air. Now, what would romantic meditation practice be? Romantic, it's like you're 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 sort of experiencing some larger idea of what's going on. You're imagining that there's a larger relationship when you're being romantic. I don't know. I've never actually understood the romance. <laughs> There's a room for some kind of ventilation of fresh air. He's definitely feeling stuffy, so he's totally, he's there, you know, into getting more air in the room. Quite possibly a person of early Vipassana practice who's used to shamatha would feel extremely guilty for doing something unkosher. But that is just a little, that is just a kind of hesitation, like when in a swimming pool you don't want to undress at a public swimming pool. Although you have your swimsuits available and you can put it on, still even that's regarded as a big deal that you're undressing and putting on a bathing suit. Now, you know, how does he come up with like a public swimming pool and go, you know, bathing? He never, did he ever go to a public, anyway, that's irrelevant. <laughs> but, um, this, this part is key here, that when Vipassana starts to happen, uh, there's this feeling of, uh, used to, who is used to shamatha practice would feel guilty about that for doing something unkosher. The unkosher thing is that you're not being as precise as you were before, not as focused on thisness as you were before. And you become trained in your shamatha to think, or to know that shamatha is about thisness and, and sort of close um, practice. What is it? Close aware, close mindfulness. Um, and so, as as you begin to expand outward and not be quite as focused on the details, you begin to feel like your shamatha is falling apart. I don't know if people here have had that experience, but you begin to feel like you're not able to sit as calmly and stillly in, in, a, uh, in shamatha with as much stillness, depth of stillness. It, it gets uh, sort of disturbed, and it, you feel like you're, you're regressing a little bit. You're undressing a little bit. Actually, it's deliberately designed that way yes. first. Yes, ma'am. I wonder if that um, that romantic quality that he's talking about is an idea of like falling into something. 
like with shamatha, there's some precision and you have to be a little bit guarded and you have to keep track of it. But with Vipassana, you have to let go of that a little bit. You have to, I think you, you have to destroy your shamatha, I think you said before. And there's a sense of like, you have to, you have to trust it. You have to just kind of fall into it and trust it. And I don't know. I wonder if that's. I, th- I like that. I think you're onto something. You must have experienced romance. I think at some point <laughs> to have, to be able to understand that so well, I think you got it. Thank you for that. And uh, this thing about destroying shamatha, we should not really talk about it. That's like a Mahamudra thing. That's very outrageous. You don't want to destroy your shamatha. <laughs> That's much later. We'll look up towards the end of the class. We'll look a, a little bit into uh, Mahamudra uh, version of shamatha vipassana. And so just also, letting go and loosening of a little bit. Then. There you go. There you go. Fall. I like what you said about falling into. Also, it's like you're falling into this larger space that's not so well-defined and not so secure. And at the same time, you're just letting go. Someone else? Yeah. So just to clarify, we're still kind of talking here about something that's not so technique-oriented, but it just arises kind of naturally. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by technique-oriented. but well, like, you know, we... We've done Vipassana practice in other classes where you're really, I guess it's a Mahamudra practice, um, where you're really like looking for the mind. Exactly. Yes. That's what I thought you meant, but I just yeah. wanted to make sure where, where like some ways of doing Vipassana have a much more structured technique to it. Mm-hmm. And Trump Rinpoche is presenting a type of Vipassana that's completely unstructured. So that's really good. Thank you. Was there some other part to that? No. Okay, that's great. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, first, a shamana practice to tighten up the whole thing, make it really definite and ordinary, simplicity. Beyond that, you try to let go of any notion of inhibition. Product of that practice of meditation while still retaining the heart of the practice. The heart of the practice which is to say that a sense of precision is still carried over, but a sense of freedom is added onto it. The heart of the practice is freedom, achieving freedom. Freedom in shamatha is freedom from the discursive mind. Freedom in vipassana is freedom from self-imposed limitations, psychological limitations. After we've practiced shamatha meditation from then onward up to tantric practices, Most of the techniques are letting go techniques of all kinds. We think we've been letting go completely, but we find because of the dogma that we're involved in, that we have been keeping something private and personal. And we find something to let go of constantly each time, each practice that we're involved with, Shanyata, Mahamudra, or whatever. So this is the way the progressive uh, presentation of the, the yanas works, is that each yana uh, cultivate something, some set of things, and achieve some some certain understanding and experience, but it has a hangover to it. And uh, you know, he describes like the Hinayana hangover, sort of it being very uh, uh, strict with oneself and sort of uh, 
uh, uptight. And uh, so the Mahayana deals with that. And the Mahayana uh, uh, sort of hangover is being uh, sort of philosophically out there. You know, shunyata, emptiness, and, and uh, Vajrayana sort of zaps you back into the uh, vibrancy of reality. Anyway, in a sense, Vipassana practice also brings appreciation of art. You can all become an artist now. In the sense of how to handle ourselves in our body, speech, mind, communication, anything. There's a sense of uh, being resulting from shamatha practice. So first, we, we, we actually are developing in our shamatha, almost strengthening our sense of presence, our sense of being. And he says this, there was a place he said this a couple of weeks ago where he said, he said, don't worry about like your philosophy of egolessness. You actually have to almost solidify your sense of self initially in order to later undo the sense of self. So sense of being resulting from shamatha practice, there's also the confident sense of how to be as well that results from shamatha. Vipassana practice, how to be, how to, how to walk in space, how to walk through situations and rooms, and how to deal with work and relationships and life and driving and your mind and so forth. Sitting practice, for instance, relates with the breathing. You felt go, you go out, it dissolves, you dissolve, but there's also a sense of some kind of echo. Not exactly a moderator, but a sense of echo. You've developed your mindfulness practice. You breathe out, um, breathing out. That's the echo, um, breathing out. You know, you breathe out, and then you know that you're breathing out. It's the echo, being mindful of that. Then at the same time, you're aware of your mindfulness. So there's a kind of delayed action of going out and going out. This sort of um, subsequent noticing of what's going on. You notice it non-conceptually, and then you notice it sort of verbally or uh, conceptually. Dissolve and dissolve, space and space, and then going out and going out. There's some kind of shadow created by Vipassana practice, which is almost on the level of verbalization, of, of feeling, oh, it's happening, it's happening. It's not a confirmation, but just a remark, a careless remark that sees things. So he sort of blurred this idea of echo uh, into the Vipassana aspect. In other words, mindfulness is a very serious thing, in case you were wondering. No laughing. And if you have awareness with mindfulness, then you begin to see the seriousness of the mindfulness. You, you notice how serious you're being. Your mindfulness is thereby lightened by it. It becomes much lighter, less heavy. But it doesn't become completely free and careless because you're still continuing your practice on the one base of basic training, basic practice. That's the one base, basic training. You can't develop a completely freestyle of practice outside the technique. So the whole thing is still boring and technical in some sense. <laughs> Darn, it was like, you know, gotta come back to that, that kind of secondary spokes, secondary mindfulness, which is awareness, allows the possibility of extending ourselves to greater awareness practice. We're not talking about Mahavapashna or Shamatha Vipassana or anything like that. Now, we haven't even gotten, 
we haven't gone to the level of advancing enough or playing about enough. At this point, we're just, what we're discussing is just the little shadow, the little shadow, of the light shadow, sorry, that goes along with your mindfulness. This is what is known as awareness. And we learn how to handle ourselves, how to work, because the whole thing is no longer awkward. With a one-shot deal, it becomes very awkward. But since there is a one-shot deal as well as a soft landing of a secondary something, which is that echo, the shadow, is the secondary part of Vipassana, it allows us at least to be a little less awkward. That's a very interesting way of presenting this. The function of early Vipassana practice. Oh, so this is early Vipassana practice that he's been talking about the whole time. What is early Vipassana practice? It's where the emphasis goes from mindfulness, trenpa, to awareness, shesen. The, uh, the function of early Vipassana is to make one less awkward. So if you feel awkward in life, then you have something to look forward to with Vipassana. I think I've discussed enough now, uh, as far as technique is concerned, it's identical with the Anapana Sati, which is mindfulness. Sati is mindfulness. And then Anapana is uh, uh, placing the breath. Anapana is something to, something to do with the mindfulness of breathing. Practice of coming and going with the breath is the same. We should discuss this to make sure everybody understood it. Okay. So that was last week. And now this is today. Now we're now. Now we're in now. <laughs> uh, let's see. So tonight we're talking about uh, the prerequisites for Vipassana. And so you see my slant on things, just in case it's not obvious, is that a lot of, in my humble estimation, a lot of this presentation of Vipassana is actually the, the advanced stage of shamatha, where one experiences a deepening of the uh, shesham or awareness or um, investigation or alertness quality of shamatha. Okay, so... Uh, Vipassana, the prerequisites, the types, relying on a wise person, which is uh, Kongchul and so on, and Trump Rimshe, to seek the view by listening extensively and reflecting accordingly. So, you know, if you haven't done this, then it's, it's going to be hard to experience Vipassana, no matter what type of Vipassana haven't like spend time trying to understand the meaning of the Dharma, which is uh, non-aggression, egolessness, then it's going to be hard to experience Vipassana. Then there's these types, these four types. Non-Buddhist type of Vipassana, which if it's non-Buddhist, it must be mundane. And then there's those uh, Shamatha, sorry, the Vipassana of Shravakas and Pradyeka Buddhas, the Hinayana uh, straw people who contemplate the Four Noble Truths endlessly. And then there's the Paramitiyana, which is the Bodhisattvayana, or the Mahayana, contemplation of emptiness. And then there's the Vajrayana, Mantrayana's teaching that emptiness is endowed with bliss. How can emptiness, if something's empty, how can it be blissful? Okay. 
So we'll go quickly through the classical stuff and then we'll focus on Trevor Rebuchet's years, John Luke Hawkshaw. And let's see, uh, we'll skip the relying on somebody because that's a problem in the current situation. And one develops the view, the understanding of suchness. Suchness is the nature of reality through the superior knowledge, which is prajna, that arises from listening and reflecting or hearing or studying and contemplating. The two first two types of prajna, these are the indispensable prerequisites. This is because without an unmistaken view, it's impossible to give rise to the realization of Vipassana. The implication here is that Vipassana is where you understand non-conceptually what you've come to understand conceptually before or outside of meditation through study. Moreover, it's necessary to rely on the definitive type of teachings rather than the provisional like you know in other words you have to rely on our teachings not the the other school's teachings our teachings are definitive <laughs> i'm joking around but definitive and provisional this is a scheme that means like definitive is like the ultimate true teachings rather than the provisional ones are teachings on um uh how to thread a needle and things like that. An understanding of the yeah. deep definitive teachings must be preceded by a knowledge of the different, hold on one second, sorry, must be preceded by a knowledge of the differences between these two levels of teachings. So he's, what he's trying to do here is he's trying to sell you on other volumes of his book, The Treasury of Knowledge, where he goes through these differences. Furthermore, one should seek the view, the understanding of profound emptiness by relying on the two traditions of Nagarjuna and Asanga for understanding emptiness. Yes, ma'am. Uh, who was Henrietta? Well, I just was a little confused. I thought he was referring to, he's not referring to the Buddha's definitive versus provisional. Oh, he very much is, yeah. Oh, okay. So <laughs> you were saying, okay, never mind. Sorry. Could definitive mean non-conceptual? Um, non-conceptual is a little bit undetermined. It's not clear what you mean by definitive teachings. Uh, if, if you say that the definitive teaching was to uh, attain a non-conceptual state of mind, that uh, that's a sort of a starting point. A non-conceptual st state of mind for what purpose? A non-conceptual state of mind that, that experiences the true nature of reality. And so it's, it's really more about not the, the state of mind, but what the state of mind understands about the nature about the nature of reality how the how how we understand the nature of reality whether whether the nature of reality is the two truths 
provisional truth, relative truth, and ultimate truth, or whether the ultimate nature of reality is just the ultimate truth, and whether that ultimate truth is uh, a lifeless, voided, vacant emptiness, or whether it's an emptiness that is in, indivisible from Buddha nature. That's exactly, you know, that's precisely what this whole scheme gets to, is how do you understand the relationship between emptiness and Buddha nature, basically is what it boils down to. Um, and presumably that that impacts how you cultivate and then experience the non-conceptual mind, which traverses the paths and boomies, so to speak. We have these four types of apashna, mundane, suppresses evident afflictions. So the sort of uh, outer level of afflictions consists in contemplating the higher and lower levels, uh, meaning the higher and lower levels of the three realms of samsara. The three realms of samsara are the desire realm, the form realm, and the formless realm. And uh, the desire realm encompasses these, uh, the realms of hell beings, hungry ghosts and animals and humans and jealous gods and gods. And then the form realms in, in, uh, include the four levels of absorption state. And then the formless realms go beyond that in a similar way. And all of those experience, those experiences of the absorptions were things that the Buddha studied before he attained enlightenment. So those are common to the uh, indigenous systems of India before him. So those are common and they didn't, they didn't help, they didn't get, uh, lead to enlightenment for him. And so he went further because the uh, absorption states didn't produce enlightenment. So that's why they're called mundane. But there's a whole system, and that was a separate uh, reading that I circulated, the seven contemplations of how to achieve the absorption states. And that's exactly, just that's the long version that this is referring to. It's how do you go from, from uh, shamatha to the first absorption state, and from there to the second, and so forth. Then we have the Hinayana version of, of the Four Noble Truths, and there's 16 attributes. So the Four Noble Truths are divided into each, each of them are divided into four attributes, totaling 16 uh, completely. And then we have the Mahayana version of emptiness, so Vipassana. Um, there's the type of Vipassana that is focused on emptiness. And there's the type of apashna that's focused on understanding the emptiness endowed with bliss. These latter three types are super mundane, non-worldly vipassana because they lead to the eradication of afflictions and enlightenment. The way to accomplish the actual concentrations, which are common to Buddhist and non-Buddhist systems, which is referred to in the mundane type, me, by means of the seven preparatory stages of which the first is shamatha has been described in the chapter dealing with the mundane path. And that's similar to the reading that I circulated. However, those of us who've entered the Matrayana, the Vajrayana, if you have entered the Vajrayana, and those who have realized the outstanding view of the Paramitayana. So if you've understood the, the sort of um, higher view of the Mahayana, you don't need those 
those uh, absorption states and the seven stages that lead to them. Okay, so uh, another uh, few presentations quickly on these different types, these different divisions of Vipassana from the Royal Seal of Mahamudra by Kamchal Rimshe. The Vipassana that has the specific feature of coarse peace is the worldly kind. That coarse peace refers to the absorption states. So he goes through the same set of four. His description is slightly different, adds a little bit of a gloss on it. And, um, but he doesn't add a whole lot onto it. Let's see. The Vipassana consisting of meditation on the meaning of egolessness is the Vipassana to be accomplished in our case. So he says, type number three, the Vipassana of the, of the Paramitayana, the Mahayana. That's what we're focused on here in our tradition. Because based on that, we should seek to establish the natural state of all phenomena included in subject and object. It's pretty much everything, I think. And then uh, just a brief glimpse at the ways of arousing this type of Vipassana. And there's these difference, these three schemes, the four Vipassanas. Um, then there's a slightly shorter version, the three Vipassanas. And then there's the two Vipassanas. Is there a one, one ver version of Vipassana? Well, we'll see if there's a one-fold version. But uh, the two-fold is the two-fold egolessness. This has many divisions, and fortunately, he doesn't discuss them here. Uh, we will discuss some of the classifications of Vipassana together with those of Shamatha and Vipassana United. So he's basically, his, his presentation of Mahamudra and Shamatha Vipassana is very similar to John Wilkonchul's presentation. Um, this comment here is not that relevant to us. Uh, and then he gives another scheme. And I'm just show, mostly showing you this, for one, because of that statement that we focus on the Mahayana version of our tradition. And then because he shows other schemes, just so you get a sense that there's there's, diff, there's all these different schemes of Vipassana. He says, okay, then there's the Vipassana, focusing on Vipassana. What does that mean? The Vipassana during experiences and the Vipassana realization. That's sort of cryptic. I, I could try to tell you what I think that means, but it wouldn't be that helpful. And there's two, past Vipassana and fruition Vipassana. Path is the examination carried out by discerning Vipassana in the lucidity during Shamatha, which sounds an awful lot like analytical Vipassana, right? And then there's fruition Vipassana. It's the correct realization of the final conviction of the non-duality of observer and observed. Non-analytical Vipassana. Hint, this is the Vipassana that Trump Rinpoche primarily presents. Now, the, the problem is that fruition Vipassana, by, uh, as the term or the name of it implies, is fruitional level. And it's a little bit difficult to experience the fruitional level of something if you haven't cultivated the path level. Just a little warning footnote. Uh, let's see here. In the Mahamudra 
tradition. And we know that Chumbi Rinpoche was a, a true Mahamudra person as well as a Mahati. But the division of Shamatha Vipassana United, which is the culmination of the progression of Shamatha to Vipassana to their union, is that the mind resting purely of its own accord is Shamatha. So uh, the mind resting in mind, mind within itself. And that state itself, the state of mind resting in itself, including the aspect of awareness, is Vipassana. So this is the Mahamudra way of describing Vipassana as being the awareness of the mind of Shamatha. Remember that Vipassana is the awareness that understands the mind of Shamatha, that understands the nature of the, the mind in Shamatha. Shamatha's one-pointedness of mind, he quotes from the sutra, Vipassana is to correctly discern the absolute reality as it is. Is there a difference between the, the nature of the mind and the nature of reality? She, you might wonder, Shamatha's one-pointedness, Vipassana is awareness. The South Lake Brimshe. Let's see, I'll skip this one. And then the, from the Bodhicitta Pitaka, the Shamatha, the Bodhisattva's perfect concentration. There's no dwelling in the notion of peace. Peace here is a, a code word for nirvana. There's no notion of dwelling in some cessation state. Vipassana, by looking, there is seen. But although there is looking, nothing is seen. That is how they see, and by doing so, they see reality as it is. This cryptic little Buddhist, you know, sort of mumbo-jumbo actually is the best summary of the whole practice of Vipassana. So think upon that over time as you practice year by year. So so he's saying nothing to see here, but don't move along. Keep looking. That's right. There's not, like, don't move along. If there was really nothing to see here, you'd move along, right? right. But yeah. no, uh, keep looking. Keep yeah. looking without seeing anything. That is how they see without seeing anything, and by doing so, they see reality. I think there's something related between nothing seen and reality. I have this hunch. Uh, this explains the common shamatha. This explains common shamatha, including the essence of the view of Vipassana. And in uh, Prashnaparamita Sutra, if you ask what is the shamatha of Vipassana of a Bodhisattva, it is the wisdom that knows all phenomena is the Shamatha and Vipassana, or the Mahasattva Bodhisattva. So just combining the two together. The state of knowing all uh, phenomena. And this is the fruitional state of the Shamatha Vipassana united. So by doing this type of Vipassana, of looking without finding, looking without finding, looking for the mind, looking for the self, looking for the ego, without finding it looking at something truly existent without finding it. It's the path, and the result is knowing all phenomena. Okay, one more. Uh, this is from this wonderful book called Moonbeams of Mahamudra. 
it's uh, for wolf people, I guess. There's the classification of Maha, of Vipassana. Uh, There's many types. There's the mundane. So he goes through the same list. And then there's the Hinayana Vipassana with the four truths. These are excellent. This one is excellent to practice, but they're not essential. The Vipassana of meditating on the absence of self is the Vipassana to be practiced here, today, now, <laughs> here and now, because it's the necessary basis by which we ascertain the abiding mode of all phenomena. So this is the traditional version, like Vipassana is what sees emptiness. The way to give rise to this is as follows. The extensive approach is, you know, when it goes through these schemes, the four of this, and there's the three of this. Eric? Yes, ma'am. When, when they say that it's not essential, what do you take that to mean? It means that I don't have to practice uh, the Vipassana <laughs> of the absorptions, and I don't have to focus on the Vipassana that uh, is focused on the Four Noble Truths, but instead I'm going to skip to the Vipassana that focuses on the what is the self and the absence of the self, which is included really within the four. It's included in the four truths, but the four truths has a lot of other stuff going on. Oh, okay. And we don't, we don't have a lot of time. We're all going to die soon. And so Do you think so? Even, is that what they really mean? They totally, that, that's my understanding. A hundred percent. Skipping all this stuff at the bottom here. It says, uh, okay, he explains this uh, sort of Mahayana version of uh, understanding emptiness and blah, blah, blah. Then he says, in this context, this context meaning like in, a, in the reality that we live in. And he also means in the Mahamudra context by relying on the major and minor texts as well as the shorter esoteric instructions transmitted by Saraha. And these other guys, including Tilopa, so it's a Mahamudra tradition lineage. We focus on just the mind to determine the nature of all, whatever this, these big words are, percepts and perceivers, everything. We just focus on the mind, which is the instruction for taking direct perception as the path. Direct perception as opposed to reasoning, logical reasoning, inference, analysis, investigation, and so forth. Direct perception. This is the Mahamudra version of Vipassana. Uh, this is the way to give rise to the view of emptiness of nature. There's many different profundities in it that involve little hardship and bring great benefit. And then he lists his main sources for this version, these texts here. Well, we have excerpts from these two, and this one is not available in English, unfortunately. Okay, skipping these next two pages. I'm sorry I included them by mistake. How's everybody doing there? Okay, so I put these in the wrong order. I sort of went back and forth, and I ended up doing using an order that I'm now going to change. So I'm going to flit around. But fortunately, I added page numbers this time. So I'm going to start with uh, uh, the freshness of unconditional mind, which is um, page 18. 
getting this psychic message that maybe we're not going to finish everything tonight. Very advanced experience knowing the future. But anyway, um, the freshness of unconditional mind. Freshness. So Pashna refers to the sense of precision that could arise from the sitting practice of meditation and then slowly infiltrate our everyday lives. Now he also talks about shamatha this way, that mindfulness, the precision of mindfulness could infiltrate our lives. So, well, that's the starting point. There are two different schools of Vipassana. There's the analytical contemplative way and the non-analytical experiential way. The analytical school talks about the possibility of becoming more aware if you ask more questions and examine the nature of reality in your own state of mind. This was what we saw in that, that last uh, text, the Moonbeams of Mahamudra. Before he went into Taloba's version. In our tradition, however, in accordance with John McCall, we talk mainly in terms of the non-analytical or experiential approach. And therefore, we're known as the practice lineage. He's very proud of that. So remember this, this whole scheme here of analytical and non-analytical, and uh, that he's, we're of the non-analytical experiential approach of Jonga, Kongshul, and the Kagyus. So we're going to challenge that, that idea. Anyway, Shamata, that'll come later. Shamata provides the ground, but too, too much emphasis on Shamata could be a problem. Other places, he says, you know, never too much shamatha, but situations are paramount. It said that one should not be attached to the pond of shamatha. You all have a pond of shamatha, right? But let the flower of Vipassana bloom like a pond beautified by a lotus flower. So this image of, of shamatha being like this pond where the silt settles, you know, over time, the silt being the description of thoughts of that uh, cloud the, the, the water of the pond, gradually those settle. And there's a tendency to become attached to that because it's so pleasant and relaxing and nice. But let the, the flower of a Pashna bloom. So the lotus flower blooms on top of the pond, but it starts, its roots go down to the bottom of the pond and it lives on the silt that has descends from the pond into the bottom of the pond. So that image of the lotus flower is spanning the uh, the uh, d defilements or the complexities of mind and then rising above it. Taking shelter in shamatha is a perversion. So it's very important to convert the relaxation of shamatha practice into the post-meditation activity of Vipassana. So we have two things that he's talking about in this sense, he says, he says, uh, we have to convert the relaxation of shamatha. So there's an implication that Vipassana is not maybe as relaxed as shamatha. Maybe, right? Which is interesting if it's not analytical. But, uh, and then he says, the post-meditation activity, and he does this odd thing where he presents, in some places he presents Vipassana as being a post-meditation activity. In some places, like it sounds like exclusively 
But then he backs up in the next talk at 73, and he says, no, it's, it also happens on the cushion. But there is an emphasis in his presentation of Vipassana occurring in post-meditation, that there's something about the, the experience of post-meditation where uh, we encounter more contrast between mind and world that provokes the understanding of the nature of mind and world than what happens in sitting practice. In sitting practice, things are, are simpler, and there's a tendency for sitting to, to focus on a shamatha type of practice. Anyway, so be aware that he's going to go back and forth on this a little bit. Traditionally, it's said that you should try to achieve a 50-50 balance between the two, having properly regrouped your state of mind and linked it with sanity, having ungrouped, lost your grouped state of mind when you were born into confusion. And now we link it with sanity. Then the post-meditation experience can be a tremendous expansion toward awareness. Vipassana is entirely different from shamatha. Shamatha practice can be regarded as a way of quieting and pacifying the mind. It's a peering down process that leads to this very little reference point and little to work on except the technique itself. Shamatha is a way to quiet oneself. It's the development of peace, having already become quiet, having practiced and achieved that basic ground way to expand out and extend ourselves. With Vipassana, rather than cutting down our perceptions, we sharpen our awareness. Does this sound familiar at all? So this is the edited version, right, of what we went through partially before. Um, it's referred to as inside the seat of prajna. We're preparing to become worthy to listen to the teachings. We can hear them properly, perceive their subtlety. That's why it's an important, opens the gate of wisdom. It also includes contemplation. So sorry about this. I, I repeated these two. In the contemplative practice, speculative mind is a way of looking beyond oneself. Skip this paragraph, interesting as it is. Vipassana arises from several different conditions, but fundamentally comes from being without aggression. Dharma is the absence of aggression. The way of dealing with aggression and challenge is the starting point. It brings clear thinking, slows you down, because the only thing you have to work on is your breathing. So Shamatha's development of peace. In order to perceive or understand the Dharma, you have to develop a state of mind without aggression, a mind based on non-ego and non-speed. That, that gives you the understanding that everything is workable and can be woven into the path. We, have, we all have elements of non-aggression and non-ego. Okay, let's skip to beauty and the beast. Now, beauty and absurdity from the teacup and the skull cup. Having discussed the ground, how the basic practice of samadhi, dhyana, or the tradition of Zen could be developed, the next stage seems to be to question the question of how concentration produces appreciation. Note the terminology. Concentration is, uh, he replaces usually with uh, mindfulness and appreciation 
as opposed to awareness. At this stage, you're actually trapping the crazy monkey. So we talked, we had the excerpt from the same book on the trapping the monkey last time. So after you've trapped the monkey, then what happens? He gave an implication at the end of that reading last week that once you trap the monkey, then you, the monkey mind, then you look at the mind. It's a twofold process. You develop that sense of accuracy and relating with your thoughts and your mind, neurosis and so forth. And then you put all that into a certain perspective as a workable. You make a relationship with your thoughts. You work with them. So this is the analogy of trapping the monkey. The traditional analogy for the, uh, this is weird. Why does he say that the analogy for a monkey is an elephant or an ox? Anyway, um, let's skip that. Awareness or intelligence is quite a different and separate category from the mind. A little bit confusing, but he's trying to point out different aspects of mind. Intelligence or consciousness has less speed and does not carry a burden. It also has some hospitality. This particular intelligence expects accommodation. Intelligence or awareness is therefore referred to as the rider or herder who works with the ox or the elephant or the money or the money, the monkey. <laughs> so this idea that that it's like uh, one part of the ride, one part of the mind rides the other part, and he's referring to the ox herding pictures, right? Where you know eventually uh, you're you're riding the ox, whereas at first you're you're struggling to get the the ox, uh, or the the elephant picture in the, the development of Shopton. Awareness regards the mind as its property. Intelligence or consciousness is the owner of the monkey mind. So we feel like we have a mind. He's talking about this experience that we all have. Uh, we feel like I have my mind, and I can look at my mind. I meditate with my mind or on my mind. I'm meditating, and in my meditation, I am trying to train or tame my mind. So there's some some sense of the division of those two things. So that duality, and it's it's uh, he doesn't explicitly say it here, but in other places, it's helpful to experience that duality of uh, me and mine. There is consciousness, the intelligent aspect of mine, and within that, the most sane aspect is the awareness portion. The monkey mind is caught in the trap. Um, because uh, of the constant practice of sitting, which provides a camouflage. <laughs> you lure you lure the mind in with the practice. Being completely still, it is complete entrapment. The mind has nowhere to go. But it's still a game. We're uncertain as to whether we're going to trap the monkey or not. It's still uncertain. It's still a challenge. Could be regarded as a big joke. This whole process, this whole... Uh, achievement of training on this whole project. But nevertheless, we're pursuing it and going ahead with it. One of the problems with the monkey mind is speed. Uh, let's see, talks about the speed. But we finally capture the monkey mind in the trap by constant patience and forbearance. Just continuing to not react to the mind's uh, waterfall of discursiveness and the boredom and the frustration 
and the resulting projection of neurosis that occurs with boredom and so forth. We do not react against the displays the monkey has provided, discursive thoughts and gossip. We continue to remain still and we're faithful to the techniques. Uh, by the practitioner, sheer discipline and patience. So just by the way, the the idea of the reading through these talks in this order was that uh, the first talk or two, he gives like an explanation of Vipassana in a sort of uh, almost intellectual way, what what Vipassana is and how it differs from Shamatha. And now in the next couple of talks, he's going to be describing a, a very experiential process of developing from Shamatha into Vipassana again. Uh, the monkey finally feels there's no life around it or around the trap, then the monkey begins to relax a little, but still practices its inquisitiveness. It's caught in the net by her stillness and faithfulness. The monkey struggles and tries to get out, but the net was well prepared. As we know, we've been, you know, we have all the techniques and the understanding of the, the path of practice by accomplished craftsmen handed down from generations. Let's talk about the lineage of the teachings and so forth. Now the monkey man can't get out. Knowing that as well, the monkey makes only feeble attempts, kind of tokens, so the mind begins to give up. Uh, so this is the analogy of capturing the elephant or the ox. In the end, the monkey turns out to be not at all that monkey-like. It turns out to be a gorilla. <laughs> Godzilla. It has power and strength and is worthwhile training this gorilla as a vehicle. Sometimes it's ferocious and so forth. So he milks this, you know, analogy endlessly. But in the practice of meditation, dealing with this gorilla, once we've captured such a creature, we have to examine it and study it. He's talking about the mind, right? We have to examine and study our mind. We cannot just do something with it without knowing its habits and behavior. This is called Vipassana practice, clear scene. Now that the mind has been captured by the discipline and techniques, we have to examine it carefully to see what we can do with this animal, how we can use it, whether we could use it for farming or a vehicle or package. So we look at the discursive thought finally entrapped in the net of discipline and see what we can do with it. This is the first step, some hope. After all the trips we've gone through, the hypothetical ceases to be hypothetical. It finally becomes reality. After all, we're not kidding ourselves uh, and pretending to be meditating. We're actually doing something with our mind now. This is the proof. We're examining the, the mind, having trapped it. Lakhtong Vipassana is clear seen because aware of every detail at the same time it's very spacious. So these two qualities of precision and spaciousness. It goes beyond the breathing exercise, a sense of openness and appreciation of the environment. The focus on the breathing is no longer the important point. Did I read that right? The focus on the breathing is no longer the important point. You focus on the totality of the breathing. The space around it becomes extremely important, extremely powerful. At that point, mindfulness becomes awareness, i.e. shamatha becomes vipassana, which is the next stage. Awareness, vipassana, means comprehension. You're not just aware without being intelligent. Wakefulness continues, but awareness not only 
uh, means seeing. It means that seeing, as well as the product of seeing, is being perceived. So first you see something, but you do not quite perceive it. Your vision has to be very clear to see properly. Then having already seen, there's still constant discipline, which continues afterwards. Having seen things as they are, the object you discover comes back to you and you begin to comprehend. It's a very interesting way of describing the process of, of examining the mind. This whole image of seeing and perceiving. Um, it comes back to you and you begin to comprehend this idea that having seen things as they are precisely and simply, then the object comes back to you and you begin to comprehend. So at first you see things, you see like the details of things in a very simplistic obser observational way. And then it comes back to you and you begin to comprehend the meaning of things how they are. You begin to understand what you've seen rather than purely seeing. This is the difference. The difference between things perceived through a camera lens and things perceived by a human mind. Camera lens just sort of records the bare facts. The mind understands the context and the meaning. And in the case of consciousness, the awareness process is a level of perception that utilizes what is seen as part of its working situation. So we, we incorporate the understanding of what we're seeing and experiencing and how we then manifest, how we work with our reality. Through awareness, you get a very abrupt, definite, clear perspective of the spontaneous working of perception and reality. Suddenly, vision and perception happen constantly and with Lakhtong, seeing and knowing take place at the same time. Comprehension. Insight. So let's now go to, uh, actually, let's do this guy. In uh, a talk called Intellect and Intuition, and I, I'm sorry, I didn't get the year. It's sort of interesting to see what year this was, but it's in this book called The Heart of the Buddha. And here the talk is called What is the Heart of the Buddha? But uh, <clears throat> somebody says, uh, what is, tell me about Vipassana, please. So, it means clear seeing, superior seeing. It begins once we've developed substantial shamatha discipline of being precise and mindful on the spot all the time. In shamatha, sound, smell, feeling, thought, everything else are looked at with such precision that they are nothing other than stillness. They don't produce further bubbles or percolation of any kind at all. There's no meaning to them. There's no understanding of, of their context and their implication. There's just the bare fact, bare perception, bare attention. He gives an example of a thought, and he says, um, everything is divided into now, now, now all the time. So we're seeing moment by moment what the mind is doing. Everything is chopped into a level of precision. Everything is chopped into grains of sand. We see the separate, individual, momentary nature of our experience, our world, our perception. That's shamatha. Usually memory is predominant. If you're sitting in, in meditation and food, you smell food, you think about what kind of food is being cooked for you. 
where you feel an ache, it shifts. Traumatum means that everything is looked at simply, sliced up, not aggression, just looked at individually. So through shamatha, you're capable of looking, looking at these experiences, individual entities, without referring to the past and thinking about where they're going. It's all just being in the present, being in the moment with what is. Everything is without beginning and end, just on the spot. So you chop your thoughts, now, now, now. Out of that comes Vipassana, the level of Vipassana. You chop thoughts because of your training in shamatha. So you're still chopping your thoughts, but at the same time, you bring them along. <laughs> now what the hell does bring, you bring them along? So you've chopped them up, and then you gather them up, and you bring them along with you? Where are you going? You're going to bring them along to. So, what, you know, it's like, what does that phrase evoke in you? You bring them along. You further them. You sort of uh, nurture, cultivate, or... They go, fur they go further, they go more. The world is a panoramic view, but at the same time, things don't really hang together the way they used, the way they ordinarily used to. You're beginning to see the fractured nature of reality. Things are made out of pieces, simple realities, primitive realities. If you smell onions for a long time, for half an hour, those smells are chopped into pieces. You smell them, you don't smell them. You smell them, you don't smell them. I think he's talking about the gaps between each moment of consciousness. You're smelling, smelling is not continuous because the mind is not continuous. So there's a moment of smelling and then there's a, the gap, the blank openness. If there was no gap, you couldn't smell at all because there'd be no contrast. Experiences are not continuous at the ego level. We think they are in cahoots, technical very technical term, cahoots. But it doesn't really happen that way. Everything's made out of dots. When experiences are chopped into small pieces, some realization of the unity of the display could come out of that. That is Vipassana. So Vipassana is seen the totality, the unity of the display of all the dots that shamatha experiences. Pointillism. So you see the point, all the little points in the painting, and then you step back and you see the depiction of the rowboat and the water and the bridge and so forth. Henrietta, you're muted. It also sounds very much like um, what we've been learning in the in the Sartrantika systems. You know, this lack of continuity, this sort of moment by moment breakdown of thoughts. And experience, right? Yeah, there's definitely a breakdown. <laughs> South Chantikas definitely have a breakdown at some point. But yes, but that's, mean, that's what they're talking about. It's just, it, he's talking about seeing specifically characterized phenomena, yeah. which is the conclusion of the South Chantika. Seeing it, um, it's momentariness. Yeah. Right, the momentary quality of phenomena, but that's shamatha and vipassana. Seeing the momentum between the momentary phenomena, right? Shamatha mm -hmm. vipassana seeing karmic momentum, interdependence, how things hang together mm -hmm. within within one moment, how different phenomena interact or rely on each other, and then over time, those dots, those individual flashes of momentary appearances relate to. 
clear scene as the definition of a portion of an exalted shaman. Things could be seen as a great display, a Disney world, or whatever you want to call it. You realize that things are not all that together, but because they're not together, they are fantastically colorful. The more you see the mark of discontinuity, the mark. So we talk about the marks of existence, impermanence, suffering, essencelessness, discontinuity is impermanence. The more you see things as colorful, the more appreciation you have for the appearances. In order to see color, you have to take a rest, then you see color again. So you see, you rest, and you see brilliance. So that was a very down-to-earth, simple little presentation for this student who asked a very unassuming, momentous question. And here we go, the uh, manual for shamatha instructors. What was he teaching to his instructors about Vipassana? And uh, we'll, we'll go as far as we can in this gathering tonight. <clears throat> There's more of a sense of awareness on the breathing, so we're in the Vipassana section of that manual, whereas the mindfulness of breathing is somewhat optional at this point. It's a dangerous statement. When do you give up, you know, the precision of mindfulness in your practice? You have to check the manual before you do that. So there's a possibility that mindfulness of the breathing could just sort of diffuse. One might find that uh, it is no longer important to stick with the breath particularly. He compares this to Shikantaza and he says this is Vipassana. So at the first level, mindfulness of breathing important in shamatha. At the second level of meditation practice of Vipassana, mindfulness of breathing becomes optional. It's an elective. You can sign up for it or not. Not because you should give it up by force, but by but the mindfulness of breathing might go away. There might be a level of expansion taking place, less sense of one-pointedness. Traditionally, the walking practice is more associated with Vipassana has more expansiveness of the body moving to the air. There's more free idea and also there are more obvious things happening because you're actually walking. Whereas with the breathing, it's questionable whether you're dreaming, imagining that they're actually breathing or not. It has this sort of dream quality. You go into the world of the breath and you're like, who's breathing here? Is the breath coming in or out of what? Okay, so today let's discuss some points about Vipassana. It's a gradual process, this experience that develops from shamatha. In many cases, students automatically arrive at that situation. In fact, it's almost predictable. So you're not particularly changing their style of technique from one to another, like graduating suddenly from one level to another. But when practitioners do enough sitting and expand their sense of identity with the practice, they tend to feel somewhat at home with it. Enough is the key phrase here. How much is enough? You know, so be honest with yourself and don't don't intentionally shift your practice. The, the process is that you read about these things for quite some time before they happen. And so you recognize them when they happen. And instead of it feeling like your practice is deteriorating, because it's not as kosher as it used to be, as I said earlier. You understand what's happening, but you don't force it. 
that point, the actual mindfulness of breathing becomes less important and less obvious. They slowly find themselves not needing to sit with the breath alone. They find they, they can do without using the breath. This this uh, statement of like not needing to sit with the breath, they can do without it, means you can still be vividly present without having to rely on a focused um, attention on the breath. So not needing to, in order to still remain vividly present. In other words, the technique of breathing begins to drop away. And also some kind of fundamental continuity of mindfulness begins to happen. Mind continuity of mindfulness means that even when there's thoughts, you maintain mindfulness. You're not drawn away in the way that you used to be. And then you have to come back from this disruption. So is that what's meant by bringing the thoughts along with you? Bringing them along, that is right. You bring them along. Yeah, that's right. You bring them along with you. You never quite go away. They come with you wherever you go. That's what's known as awareness. The general nature of the Vipassana is that you slowly begin to go away from the techniques of any kind. That is awareness. So uh, it sounds like he's clearly talking about non-analytical Vipassana. You have systematic, formal, rigid discipline at the beginning. It's an interesting way to characterize shamatha, systematic, formal, rigid discipline. So <laughs> remember that you know, in your shamatha. And then you begin to go away from that formality slowly and become more and more involved with general panoramic mindfulness, which is awareness. So, you know, he's mixing the term. He's not that precise. You know, it should, should be more like general panoramic experience, which is awareness. That also makes the everyday sitting practice as well as leading life in the post-meditation experience easy or easier for you. In other words, mindfulness is very hard to carry out exactly while you're cooking and so forth. It's more work. But on the other hand, awareness becomes much easier to carry out because there's no particular specific technique involved for one thing. There's not a concentration which is based on pinpointing the situation. So we're talking about mindfulness as the practice of being precisely attentive to whatever's happening. So you're cooking, you're washing dishes, you're eating. There's all these different things happening. Your mindfulness is flitting back from one thing to another, a sort of busyness. Then as your practice grows, you sort of pull back and have this panoramic experience quality of it where you don't have to uh, move around with every little thing that you're your mind moves to, your attention moves to, but you look at your attention from a distance. If that makes any sense. There's not a concentration which is based on pinpoint. So the whole thing is generalized, but still wakeful. That's the general tendency of Vipassana, which means awareness, development of clear scene. It's clear seen in the sense of general vision rather than focused attention on one particular object. It's panoramic, all-pervasive. Somehow it's very difficult to begin on Vipassana first with the general development of general awareness because we haven't actually worked on the specific awareness or mindfulness first in all situations, like one's pace walking meditation or one's pace of sitting and breathing. It would be 
difficult to institute anything general because we haven't developed individualities. We haven't developed the specific, uh, the attention focused on specific individual momentary phenomena. Once the individuality is developed, that ability to keep track of things on a momentary level, there would then be no difficulty at all, which is the expansion of that. It's like opening the aperture of a lens of a camera. That seems to be one of the basic points of the population. It seems to take a long, long time for people to get to that point. That's a key phrase. It takes a long time for this to occur. I am still waiting for this to occur. The general sense of Vipassana possibility is always there. Sometimes the Vipassana comes from another angle. That is, in sitting practice, a person works on the breathing. That still seems to be very much, be needed very much. But after sitting, finished, it's finished. You have an everyday life situation happening. A sense of panoramic awareness develops as an after effect a very concentrated shamatha. So this experience of like sitting intensively in like for an all-day practice or a retreat and then leaving the retreat and going out into the world and experiencing the, the multiplicity of uh, objects, of appearances. And probably at first there's like a feeling of being overwhelmed with it, but if you have confidence in your mind, you relax with it begin to have a glimpse of the, the larger panoramic awareness blanket that you can sort of cover everything with, where you're noticing everything at the, at the same time. You're not, your, your awareness doesn't drop down, funnel down to a small point, but you're able to remain open to all of the stuff that's going on. So the concentrated shamatha tends to bring Vipassana in everyday life situations with some people. Sort of the contrast between the simplicity, being on the cushion, and then the complexity of everything else afterwards. Such people can't do without using the breathing while sitting, but later they can be fully aware, fully there, fully aware, at the same time accomplish what they're doing. So those are the two possibilities. People have different styles and find different ways to develop them. But both lead to the same situation. Uh, in my understanding, it wasn't really clear what the two different styles are. My, under, my understanding is that the two different styles are people who can experience Vipassana on the cushion initially versus those who experience Vipassana initially in post-meditation. And both types of persons, I think, uh, then progress to the, to the stage of experiencing Vipassana in both situations. The whole purpose of practice here is to provide a very vague, vague sorry, boundary between sitting and not sitting, so that finally everything becomes part of meditation. So it's not this abrupt shift between sitting where you're everything together, you're very present, and then, oh, get up, and like everything goes haywire, you're back to your normal scattered being. A little bit further, we're, we're a little over time, just probably another five, ten minutes. We begin to see through the technique. We understand the technique is a technique. It's not like the ultimate thing. One might be very faithful and willing to continue with the breathing, but then feel that it's somewhat irrelevant somehow. They feel there's something which happens behind the breathing, behind the actual mindfulness of breathing activity. 
become aware of the larger pattern of awareness around the focused attention of mindfulness. You see, the process goes through all the nine elements of the journey. That process. Each time one begins to see through the technique, he or she is ready to get to the next one. Similar to what he talked about before, where each stage sort of corrects or works on the, the fixation on the last stage. You begin to uh, drop your crutches and see them as irrelevant. You still obey your doctor's order, orders. Although you can work perfectly normally, you still might carry your crutches along. You say, like, even though maybe you don't need to be so focused in, in precision of mindfulness on the breath while you're sitting, that you still do it. There's still this habit to do it, but at the same time, you also have the experience of the larger awareness. There's that kind of tendency, somehow kind of insight to develop. I'm still faithful to the technique, but I have this sense of something larger than one point is taking place. It's necessary to go very slowly with this transition. Don't rush it. The general tendency is that one tends to rush it on patient enough, and one might suggest unskillfully to a student that there's more to come. He's talking to meditation instructors. You know, it'd be a mistake to sort of push people along too early. You know, oh, why don't you lighten up and not focus on the breath so much? Would not be a helpful uh, hint. I said the practice is like a course that you go through, which is a mistake. So when a student comes back and asks you what next, you have to push them back and say, keep doing the same thing. One has to be very persistent, otherwise nobody takes deep enough root in the practice. So I think if you've been hasty, things become dissociated, people have less feeling of the practice of meditation. This is one of his recurring themes, more shamatha. The more shamatha, the better. The Vipassana experience comes much later. Shamatha approaches like a worm in a tree, it eats the tree, digests it, leaves excrement behind, and it goes on eating, creates a tunnel rather than any escape. I'm trying to like escape from our mind through shamatha. We're trying to find a way through our mind. That seems to be traditional. It's called walk of the tortoise. Very slow, definite, recovers ground. This, this uh, legend of a, a race where you know, the tortoise wins is because of its focus and perseverance. In other words, if there's any kind of glamour, it's very attractive to present, whatever that means. In conclusion, I think Vipassana awareness is a general sense that there's a greater understanding of the whole thing taking place. Almost you can see it back of your head. That's a very helpful little tip. Almost you can see it back of your head. Like you have this feeling like you know what's going on behind you. It's like everything can be operated in the daylight. What does that mean? Everything is in the daylight. It's, it's sort of like Internally, your lights are turned on. Internally, you have a sense of clarity of like knowing what you're doing, knowing what's going on, knowing your mind. We're not particularly aware of the sunshine in us, but everything functions in the daylight as opposed to nighttime. I'm not being literal about daylight. It's like your mind becomes clear. There's a total sense of clarity, which isn't extraordinary at all. It's just very simple. It's another kind of preoccupation. You know, you sort of put something out there, and then, and then he doesn't want you to get like all focused on it being as being some you know, great experience. So he plays it back. He pulls it back. It's just another kind of preoccupation. 
couldn't, you know, you could deal with it, end up dealing with it in that way. You know, if you're upset about something, you still feel it in the back of your mind. But at the same time, you can pay your bills and make your phone calls. <laughs> anyway, enough of that. So next week we'll, uh, we'll continue with uh, a couple of other readings that I missed. Rediscovering Yourself, Meditation, Taking a Leap, and then Systems of Vipassana. Any comments, questions before we chant and end? Anyone? I didn't see if anyone. Well, I have a question. Okay. It's not specifically related to the content that you presented in class tonight. Okay. But I caught wind of this announcement that you're going to do a class or something on the sadhana of Mahamudra. Is that... (laughs) Would you please... That's funny. What that is? That's very funny. Yes, so uh, we're going to start practicing together the Sadhana Mahamudra once a month. So if anybody would like to join us, uh, we'll practice and uh, we can talk about the practice each time as well. So I think we're doing it on the second Thursday of each month at uh, 7 o'clock. So if you want to do that, there's a group called the Westchester Meditation Center, which is uh, it's sort of a combined Westchester, Pennsylvania, and Westchester, New York group. And uh, you can look us up and join us for the Sadhana Mahamudra. Thank you, Mary, but that's right. And uh, it's a good way to experience the expansion of your shamatha Vipassana by doing that Sadhana. It's actually a really helpful way. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so let's chant. Uh, something's happening. Yeah, my audio doesn't sound good because I had to plug in again because my laptop is dying. Oh, where were we? For this marriage, may all obtain admissions, may defeat the enemy stormy waves of birth, all days, sickness and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the region's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank, Thank you, Mary Beth has, has posted the link for the Sadhana Mahamudra. Thank you, everyone. Thank nice you. to see you. Have, good you. Have a Thank good you. week. See you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Get your shots. Get your shots soon. When you An can. appointment. All right. Me too. Next week. <laughs> Go for it. Thank you. <laughs>